Let's put our minds together as one and remember those who have passed on to the sky world. Their life duties are complete. They are living peacefully in the sky world. In the sky world. My name is Natalie Evans, and you're listening to a special series from Some Kind of Brown called Red November. There's an epidemic in the indigenous communities that spurred a movement called Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, or MMIW. For the entire month of November, which is National Native American Heritage Month in the United States, my contributors and I will be talking about the loss of our sisters, the impact it continues to have on each of our lives, and how we are honoring the women, girls, and two-spirit people who have walked on by being visible and making sure that we are heard. Our hope is that the fire in our hearts touches yours and the gaps between our communities can be bridged. Whether you are indigenous, multiracial like me, or not, thank you for being here and for listening. We are native. We've been here. We will not let our lost sisters and our own voices fade away. Welcome to the movement. For this very first episode of Red November, I am bringing back someone you might be familiar with if you've been with the podcast for a while. It's going to be a heavy episode, and this will give you a good idea of what we're going to be doing for the rest of the month. But before I get any further into it, would you like to introduce yourself again? Um, hello, my name is Tristan Aganak Morgan, Sagven Koyak, Nagavana Koyak, Mamaga Aganuk, Aluganagamu. So my name is Aganark. My traditional name is Aganark. My other names are Sigagruk and Kignuk. I'm named after my great-grandma on my mom's side of the family. And the rest of my introduction is introducing my mother and my Aka, my grandma, and then my Apa, my grandpa, mm-hmm. and just where they're from, which is Alugunik. And that's Wainwright, so it's about 200 miles west of Kalgavik or Barrow, is what it's known by. So that's just my family and my family introduction. It's done to let people know who I am and where I come from. I am a contemporary Indigenous artist and an advocate for Indigenous people and issues. I'm very grateful and very blessed to be able to be doing this work that I am doing. And I'm just glad you're back (laughs) and grateful that we've been able to keep this connection for a year year now. Oh my gosh, it's already been a year. Yeah. Time has flown by and so much has happened between then and now too. Oh, I know. It's crazy thinking about it. Yeah, this has turned into something really awesome and I'm really excited to be a part of this. Thank you. And you know, we were talking about me just starting to get reconnected with my Indigenous side, and that happened very quickly, and it's been interesting, the journey I've been on in this last year. And here we are, talking about missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. It's a heavy topic, but I didn't want another November to pass without talking about something that is so important. 
you know, when I first started, I thought MMIW was like an old thing. It was something everyone knew about that I didn't. And I didn't realize that it kind of started in 2017 or 16. Were you around for the beginning of that? Looking back at it, I was. It was a very new movement to me as well. I also felt the same way, that it was something that had been around for a while and it was just kind of gaining traction. Kind of like the um, like other various movements that have been happening. It just feels like it was around for a while. And I think I actually did a piece, a painting triptych about missing and murdered indigenous women that was centered around my mother and her experience with sexual assault specifically. And I think during the time, this movement and kind of the the concept of it, it was really new to me. And also I've been in a place of privilege where it, it hasn't touched me and my immediate family. So I felt like I needed to navigate it in a very respectful way yeah. and to not overstep any boundaries. I really focused on kind of the, the one in three Native women part of it, yeah. where one in three Native women will see sexual assault or be raped in her lifetime. That's the part that I was very familiar with, not the entire concept of missing murder Indigenous women. I heard a lot of stories, but none that were you know as close to me as there are for other individuals. And so I really made sure that I didn't overstep my boundary or, you know, insert myself in conversations that I don't necessarily belong in. So I think when it first started, it was more so about listening and kind of passing the mic than anything. And that's that's what I continue to do as well. And I think everybody's kind of still trying to figure out what we're doing. When I started the podcast and we did the recording, it was already a year that MMIW had kind of started and been gaining traction, which is insanity to think that this is so new, especially when you look at the numbers. Yeah, once I heard the numbers, it kind of just hit hard. It was just hard to hear. But then also when you think about it, there's a lot that isn't reported as well. So those numbers are statistically going to be higher yeah. than what has already been put out there. You always like knew. <laughs> At least for mm -hmm. me, I just always knew of it. But once I kind of heard the numbers, that's when I really started to explore it a little bit more. Yeah. And I think that since I came into it a little later, I can see uh, a little more objectively how things developed. And to me, it looked like this was just an accepted thing. Violence against Indigenous communities, especially in the U.S. and Canada, is not new. Everyone knew that there was a lot of violence towards the indigenous communities, especially women and girls who are especially vulnerable. But I think there are a couple of women that were not particularly unique as far as what happened to them. I think it was just the indigenous community, the native community snapped. Like, we're done with this. We're done letting this happen. We're done being silent. And it's kind of grown very quickly from there. Definitely. I feel like you always just knew about it, especially like within my communities. Everyone knew about these things happening. You just didn't talk about them. So I think that, that what you're talking about where people just kind of snapped and we just, we need to do something about this. And I think starting that conversation has been really empowering for a lot of people and really healing for a lot of people. And so that's why I think it really gained a lot of traction so quickly because it was kind of like 
these things that just no one talked about, like especially with like mental illness, like that was never really talked about. I know Canada had the boarding schools, or I mean the residential school. Yeah. And then like with my family was heavily affected by boarding schools as well. And you just don't talk about it. Like that's just the kind of the culture. You just don't talk about the negative aspects of it. And I think we started kind of realizing that talking about negative experiences is actually really important and really healing. And it really pushes us forward as, as communities. When you start opening up the world of how Indigenous communities actually function and what their needs actually are, it's insane. In a later episode, we're going to talk about this too, but if you are not following people who are in the Indigenous community, if you're not following or talking or looking for these things, it's so easy to miss what's happening. Yeah, I think it's also hard seeing the level of violence. Yeah. I'm not going to see that level of violence, but I've seen how it affects my family, how much pain they harbor and they carry around with them. I wish that I could carry it with me instead. Sorry, I'm getting getting emotional. Um, But this is good. (laughs) You know, this is important. And that's why, like, especially when I did that piece with my mom, that level of self-awareness where you see, you know, your family going through these struggles and you see the struggles and the oppression that your your people have endured and coming from a base place of privilege myself I know that I can't take away their pain but I'm still gonna try to and I'm still gonna try and go through the motions of healing yeah healing my people and in some way or another at least trying to that's really what comes down to it for me personally you know moving forward i i want to ensure as much as i can that that doesn't happen to anyone if i can't help it yeah and i think us having this conversation i think we are taking some of that burden of violence some of that burden of oppression on ourselves and helping carry some of the load by trying to improve things we're taking responsibility as a generation to make things or try to make things better for ourselves for our future so that what our parents or grandparents went through we don't have to go through or see anyone else go through as well. Yeah. Even though we both grew up in different situations, you were in your community and I was kept away. It's actually born out of the same reaction and the same suffering. At the last powwow I went to with my cousin, we were talking to an MC and all three of us are black and indigenous and they are both elders. They're quite a bit older than me. And we were just talking Well, they were talking and I was absorbing a lot of what they were saying. It was so crazy to hear. They were talking about when they were young, it was so important to not be Native, to not be Indigenous because of the level of violence that you would face or the day-to-day discrimination. And if you were Black and Indigenous, you had nowhere else to go. Like You couldn't say you're not Indigenous and Black because it's in the color of your skin. You can't hide, you know? So some people try to distance themselves from their culture as much as possible to get away from the violence. And some people stuck to it and tried to improve or just, you know, stayed together as a community. And my dad's response was to take us out of the culture. But my family found solace in the community. So it's interesting that our positions both come out of the same pain and 
in same situations. Yeah. And that's why like anyone who's reconnecting, like I just remind them just to be mindful of the communities that they're trying to reconnect with, especially because all there's a lot of pain involved. And there's some instances where, you know, you just be quiet and yeah. you don't talk about these things. And I think that shows like a level of respect for your people and your communities that there's, there's a lot of pain and people are going to react in different ways. And some people are going to be very jaded. And I think just recognizing that there's a lot of trauma involved and there's a lot of trauma responses that once you kind of show that level of empathy, you're able to really navigate those situations and really try not to take it personally. Yeah. When, when someone doesn't want to talk about something or someone responds in a very negative way, where they're coming from and where that pain comes from, which is really deep. Talking about that piece with my mom and her sharing that story with me that she hadn't shared with me before, it really gave me a deep level of respect for my mom and all that she has gone through even though that has negatively impacted me in my childhood with the idea of intergenerational trauma. Yeah. You know, I was angry with my mom for a really long time and maybe she'll listen to this and she'll be like, yes, yeah, Tristan was really mad at me. (laughs) (laughs) It really opened up my eyes to understanding the pain that's involved, the deep-rooted pain that's involved with intergenerational trauma it's real and breaking that down is not a pretty process. No. <laughs> it's not going to be, you know, we're all like sitting in a circle singing like kumbaya, like that's not how it works. And I think people who aren't a part of our communities don't understand that. You know, I'll get some weird questions sometimes about artwork and you really just have to like step back and be like, okay, you don't, I don't think you understand <laughs> where I'm coming from. I did that piece in 2017 for a class and all of my classes, like the last about year of my art classes that I took in my undergrad, they're all focused on indigenous issues. Everything was usually something with identity. So when I did that piece on my mom, that was really, really heavy and I brought it to critique and my entire class was, everyone was white except for a few people of color and then there was one other native artist. All of my classes were really white and all of my work was so culturally centered that a lot of my classmates didn't know what to do with that. I had one comment from a white girl that was like, I can relate to this, you know, as a woman seeing sexual assault. And I really had to break that down and be like, this is something that you will not experience. Like, yes, you may experience some form of sexual assault, but there's more to it. I appreciated to some degree um, that she was trying to relate to it, but I think especially non-Indigenous people, like about this specifically, or non-people of color, they try and relate to it. And when they do that, they're not listening. They're just hearing you. You want people to listen and be like, you know, this is something that I'm never going to experience. Yeah. And just like with, you know, with you being Black and Native, that's something I'm never going to experience. And that's not something that I could relate to, but I'll listen. But that really hurt when she was trying to relate to it. It just kind of was affirming that no one was actually listening to me. And I actually almost like stopped making art altogether because of the responses that I was getting as an Indigenous artist in a very, very white space. 
And so that was really hard. Yeah. It really took me reaching out to my family and reaching out to other Indigenous artists. And honestly, that's like around the time when I started getting into Native Twitter too. <laughs> so I found these support systems that were like, you know, you're doing really good work. And I was like, but no one's listening to me. <laughs> like everyone's hearing me, but they don't want to listen and they don't want to do anything about it. They're just in critique. Yeah. But it really took the support of family and of community to really give me confidence in my voice again to where I, I can talk about missing and murdered indigenous women. I felt kind of ashamed, honestly. Ashamed. I was like, maybe I'm not the person to talk about this. You know, maybe I'm just being too loud. Like, am I just making everything negative? I am totally with you on that. I don't know if I would call it ashamed, but I definitely asked myself the same questions. I mean, you grew up in your culture, and if you are second-guessing if you should be talking about MMIW, then how much more should I question? And I think that it all comes back to community, and you have built around you a group of people who support you and make you feel like your voice is relevant, and that you can, as a Native woman, speak on these issues. For me, as to where I am in my journey of reconnecting, I've reached the point where if I ignore these things, if I'm complacent, if I only seek out the good things, then I'm doing a massive disservice to both myself and to my community. I'm just not someone who will sit still and be quiet when I see things happening. And I know you're not like that either, so... I think it was only a matter of time until we really started talking about these things. And I think that part of our hesitance really comes from both of us being mixed race natives as well. But again, it just all comes down to community and being accepted by a community and doing the work. Yeah, and I think it shows the complexity of the movement as well. And shows that the level of respect that we have for each other and each other's voices. And I think for those of us who are reconnecting, part of the work that we have to do in order to be contributing members of this community is to recognize what people born in the community have gone through and that they do have different experiences. And if you're empathetic and you approach it from a standpoint of humility that you just open and want to learn, it will be very easy for you to find that community, but you just have to acknowledge and know what's going on. And talking about MMIW, I didn't just want to talk about it myself because I still don't feel comfortable talking for more people than myself. I wanted to talk to people who are in the community and doing different things and come from different backgrounds to both add some more levity to the situation and add some different perspectives as well. You know, when you're dealing with things that are this severe, you have to have that respect and you have to band together because if we're going to affect change, we have to figure out what is happening and how we can all work together to fix it. Yeah, exactly. It kind of lays down the foundation that we're able to really make an impact and be able to push this forward. So when we're talking about the MMIW movement and what really kicked things off, we have to talk about Savannah Greywind. Because of what happened to her, it led to something called Savannah's Act. 
And as far as the movement goes, it's absolutely crucial. It uh, lead to what we said before, that kind of snap where the community was like, no more. I'm not going to talk about what happened to her. If you guys want to know about her story, I will have links. Because if you're not familiar with her story, it is important to know. But we also want to treat these women in Savannah as real people, not just names on a list or a statistic. Because it's very easy to do when you're dealing with something that has such a wide scope. And this is not a true crime podcast. This special month, we're dedicating to honoring voiceless women and showing people who are in the community trying to give voices to them. So Savannah was murdered in 2017 and there was a movie called Wind River that exposed the realities that indigenous women and girls face. So it's, I think it's important to mention those things that happened in 2017 because it led to, again, Savannah's Act, which only passed in December of 2017. No, 2018, which is so, so recent. It's not even been a year since we've had Savannah's Act. And Savannah's Act requires an annual report to Congress with statistics on missing and murdered Native women and recommendations on how to improve data collection. As crazy as it is, this is something that's never existed before. There are a lot of places that haven't even reported crimes against women where we don't have any information on what it's like. And different groups like the Coalition to Stop Violence Against Native Women, who we are going to be raising money for this month, these people are trying to get these numbers so that we can show people outside of the community and inside the community how serious these things are and how much we need to improve. You said earlier that one in three Native women will face some kind of sexual violence, correct, in their lives? Yes. I just want to go through some statistics. On the Coalition to Stop Violence Against Native Women, again, it's going to be linked. It says four out of five women are affected by violence today. I think that's probably around the same number. I can't math, but it's a lot. It's too many. Is that really just what it comes down to? Like the numbers? Like, I don't know what it is, why people need very specific numbers yeah. to like understand the severity of it. That's the problem that I've had. Like I've had to like give people the statistics in order for them to believe it. And I'm like, why don't you believe me? I'm literally yeah. experiencing this right now. It's the same thing when I tell people about racism I faced. If you don't know what's going on, if you don't know what to look for, mm -hmm. it's so easy to miss what's happening. And I think things like statistics, as unfortunate as it is that we need to sometimes give them to get people to listen, they show an unbiased kind of look or a more objective look at what's going on. I don't know what the malfunction is. I don't know if it's a lack of empathy or just a lack of understanding. But when you take it from just one of us saying, this is a problem to look at these numbers, then sometimes it catches people's attention. Yeah, no, I, I can I can see that. I think part of it is willful ignorance as well. So once you bring out the numbers, it's really hard to deny it. Yeah, you can dismiss one person, but can you dismiss all these numbers? Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's unsettling, but it's like a part of the process of trying to fix this problem. And the root of the problem is not just reporting. You'll notice in our list of resources, I listed 
the podcast Jensen and Holes because they have offered their services and their help and assistance for people inside the community who need things to move along or need to report because a lot of the problems with why we have so many missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls whose cases aren't being taken care of is there's a lack of communication between jurisdictions that gets really complicated between tribal and federal and state groups. Mm-hmm. There's lack of emergency services and counseling and family services. A lot of indigenous communities want to keep things to themselves and try to deal with things on their own. But part of this movement is acknowledging that if we stay in our own groups, it's not going to change because the violence is from outside. If we can raise awareness about this both inside the indigenous communities about resources that are available and outside so that people can help approach this issue from both sides, it will get better. At least that's what we're working towards. Yeah, it gets even more convoluted once you realize the numbers are, they're large, but they're even larger. And you kind of get into, you know, what you're talking about that kind of the logistics of it as well as the fact that you know our trans women and our two-spirited people are also included in this yes and there's that level of transphobia as well and then there is colorism and racism within our communities too it just adds more and more need for these conversations to happen and i think i think a lot of people that are you know within the trans community whether they identify as two-spirited or non-binary or uh, what have you do have rightfully so a level of dissatisfaction with kind of how these conversations are held. And I think that's also really important to touch on too, to ensure that it is a missing and murdered indigenous women, but that includes non-binary and trans people within that as well. Uh, So there's that whole other kind of level that needs to be discussed on top of the reason why these numbers are so high and the fact that we know that they're higher. We just don't have those numbers and it's for whatever reason, whether it's, you know, not enough reporting, whether it's like communities that just don't talk about these things or they aren't able to talk about it for whatever reason. I think it's also really another side of the conversation that needs to happen. Absolutely. And because of Savannah's Act and because of the requirement for these reports, luckily there's a lot of reporting that's coming now. So in the next few years, we should see some change because again, it's a new act And it's going to take time to get a lot of these numbers. But the Urban Indian Health Institute has a report and the numbers are kind of staggering. Just to tell you how big it is, and this is only what we know of, I have linked this report, the full report, if you want to read it. It's very interesting. It breaks it down by region, but it does include all two-spirit, LGBTQ, non-binary individuals. So that helps us have a pretty accurate number as far as we can. Mm -hmm. In 2016, there were 5,712 cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls reported, and only 116 of them were logged in the U.S. Department of Justice's Federal Missing Persons database. So that is an extreme disparity. And not a lot of research has been done on Native Americans and Indigenous people living in urban areas. A lot of this is people who live in the communities on reservations. 
So the numbers are even worse than we think they are. And like I said, that data is going to probably expand the next few years. I know one of the problems is racial misclassification. And that's something I never thought about. I was listening to a recent episode of All My Relations, and they were talking about blood quantum and how racial misclassification is a remnant of colonization that we still are fighting today. And that's something that affects me very personally as well. My dad is listed as colored, whereas he should have been classified as Native American and Black because that's what he is. So it makes it complicated for families like mine, where the government has systematically tried to enforce a one-drop rule, and that gets us removed from the Native community, whether by choice or by the institutions that we have. There's a lot of institutional racism in the media as far as coverage for these cases. They're not talked about very often, and it's very hard to find information on the individual women and their lives. These women end up as a story or two, or mentioned in the context of talking about a murderer, and that's all we have. And so it's very reductive. It it takes away these women's humanity. And I think that also is a contributing factor to why people don't really know what's happening. Yeah, it just feels so normalized. These stories are just very flat. The way that the narrative happens, it doesn't humanize any of us. And then oftentimes the blame is put on the women and the people who are murdered as well, which was a really big thing that I noticed recently. I won't dive into this because it's, it's very fresh and I want to be respectful of the family. But in my area specifically, there was a, a Native woman that was murdered and they focused on like substance abuse. And like that was really kind of the only thing that was noted. <laughs> and it just kind of puts the blame back on the victim. Yeah. And it it brings it back to the story of the murderer. Mm -hmm. And you see this a lot with especially black and brown, you know, murdered people say usually will focus on, you know, how it was kind of warranted. Like, you know, they're living a bad lifestyle. So obviously, you know, they're going to be murdered at some point or another. And it's yes, they live high risk lifestyles. Yeah. And then they'll talk about, you know, the murderer being a part of his community and you know, <laughs> the wife and the wife had no idea. And then talking about, oh, I, this is super surprising. But when you're a part of the communities, this isn't surprising. Yeah. And that hurts. It hurts a lot. And it hurts knowing that that's the focus. It just feels like you're just kind of screaming into the void and not being listened to. Absolutely. And when we talk about Savannah in particular, it was what happened to her and her death that started this movement in the Dakotas and was presented by Senator Heidi Heitkamp, I believe. She said that it's time to give a voice to these voiceless women. It's time to bring their perpetrators to justice and give a voice to the families who are struggling even today, sometimes decades later, to understand how this can happen in America. So they wanted to honor Savannah and who she was as a person. And even in that, I am very sad that there's not more information about her. I want to know who she was and what she was like, what kind of light she was to, I'm sure, her family and friends. But because we don't have her anymore. We will know her as an inspiration and 
someone who's spurred of movement. And that's both empowering and really tragic at the same time. Yeah. And I think it's really important to continue to hold on to that pain because it kind of fuels the fire. You know, just recognizing that alone and then recognizing, you know, this is really painful and it's so painful that we need to do something about it. You want to do as much as you can to ensure that that doesn't happen. And so it's starting the conversation of what can we do? What are the steps that we need to take in order to be at the point where this, this isn't something that we hear about every single day? You know, like one week goes by and another case comes up or you hear families talking about something that happened and then a month later another family member is missing yeah it's just being constantly pushed down i totally understand the families or the people who are in so much pain that we need to help pick them back up and i think it kind of shows how we um, function as a community where individualization is really detrimental to our communities and i think by creating a movement like this like it really brings people together and we find strength in each other do you want to you know be the person that holds on to some of that pain for someone because you can't carry it all by yourself and that's why you have family and that, that's why you have community is to find that healing amongst each other i am a part of a fellowship within philanthropy and we talked about community care so not self-care but community care What does that look like for you within the different communities that you're a part of? And that's really what I focus on. Like whenever I think about like self-care, I think of how important it was for my healing process, you know, coming through reconnecting and dealing with intergenerational trauma and my own issues was reaching out and looking for that support and realizing that asking for help doesn't mean that I'm weak. Mm -hmm. It actually means that I'm very strong. The more I share with my community, the more I heal with my community, the stronger we will be. So I think that's that also really reigns true with this movement. It shows how important it is for us to heal together. Yeah. And as someone who's newer or not as far down that path, there's a lot of self-healing that I have to go through as well in finding community. And at this stage, it's almost overwhelming especially coming from a Black background as well. It's an interesting experience. I say interesting because it's just my nature to kind of soften things. It's, it's a hard thing to tackle. And I want to take responsibility to spread these things because to me, to be a part of a community is to take that responsibility on. It's a big mind shift from what you would consider like the typical American way of looking at things which is very individualistic. You take care of yourself. Always be trying to build yourself up and personal wealth and development and that kind of thing. But Native communities don't function that way. They're actually communities. (laughs) By culture and by necessity, we all lean on each other and it's really beautiful. I mean, a lot of healing can come from that as well. But when we have communities that are hurting and not being listened to, It just ends up in this cycle of violence. Like you said, waking up every day or once a week, hearing another story is just so much hurt, so much pain. Like, how can we have another one? How can we have another sister gone? How can we have another act of violence against us as a community? When is it going to stop? 
it's just so overwhelming to have that cycle. And that's something that I really like about this report because it talks about what we were talking about as far as how people are covered and how much effect that has on whether people are taken seriously or not. There's a lot of contribution towards the cycle of violence that has to do with language and it fuels the violence against our communities and is responsible for a lot of the ways we are silenced. They actually break it down in this report and it says the types of violent language used in articles When you're reporting on a missing or murdered indigenous woman or girl, 38% of the articles made references to drugs or alcohol. 33% of coverage of trans women victims were misgendered. 31% of articles that referenced the victim's criminal history. 11% that referenced the victim's involvement in sex work. 8% have given false information on the case or did not name the victim at all. 4% made excuses for the perpetrator or used victim-blaming language. And 3% showed images or videos of the victim death. These ways of using violent language lead to stereotypes. Unfortunately, there's still a stereotype. Native or Indigenous people are just like all alcoholics or addicted to drugs or involved in sex work, and these stereotypes lead to violent action. And if no one's going to stop that cycle, if no one's calling out these people or trying to change it, what else can we do, you know? Coming from within the community and like seeing how beautiful everything is and how there's so much resiliency and there's so much community and so much love and laughter and kindness and selflessness, And then to be dwindled down to these very negative things in other people's eyes, it definitely contributes to that. And it makes it really hard for people to have any sort of compassion for these things that are happening. It's just so painful to see and to hear to be reduced down to those things. And then people not understanding why someone would turn to alcoholism, why someone would turn to these, you know, different outlets. You see it a lot. Homelessness is a really big issue in Anchorage right now. Yeah. It's a huge like kind of topic that's happening. Just hearing the way that people talk about homeless people. I had this conversation the other day about, you know, someone was like, oh, well, they're just begging for, you know, I, I don't understand why they just don't work for it. And I was like, have you ever been in that situation? Because I really don't think you are able to speak on that. If And there's a lot of reasons why someone would be homeless, whether it be mental illness or maybe there's a lot of people who do have jobs. And then you have to really look at what's the source of the problem. Why aren't we having, you know, why can't we house these people? Well, you know, rent is way too high. Yeah. And really difficult for someone to just live and be able to, you know, afford a place to live, even though they're working, feeding themselves. Oftentimes they're, you know, they're have families as well so it's like there's so many different factors that are involved in the in kind of these issues I think it's really easy just to be dismissive and to not care you know especially with missing murdered women like you know oh well she had a substance abuse problem and you know she was a um, a sex worker it was bound to happen Mm -hmm. that sort of thing and it's so like dismissive and it's like you know I don't want to deal with this problem because it has nothing to do with me. It's their problem. And it hurts a lot. There's a lot. It hurts a lot. <laughs> it's strange 
trying to explain things to people because it's easier to dismiss or think that you would do something differently. It's easier to think that you're safer and I just put myself in that situation or women like me just dressed promiscuously or acted promiscuously and basically brought it upon ourselves. It, it, that's easier than facing the fact that the way we look at women or the way we treat women is not good and there's a systemic problem that we need to recognize. It's always easier to blame the individual person. And I think that's something that really, really, really has to change. There's so many different facets of the movement that need to be worked on and that's just one part feels so large but then you just really have to think about okay what can I do to help yeah like what can I as a person do to help in some way what can I do to make sure that people don't feel alone we can do something together yeah and we can change this narrative together it's going back to community it's talking about you know what can we do Reaching out for help yeah. and receiving help is a very strong thing to do because you're putting yourself out there and you're telling people that you're vulnerable and that you need help. That's a form of strength. And I'm glad that we do have a movement like this because then it shows people that they're not alone. This is a problem. We need to do something about mm -hmm. it and we're going to do something about it. And part of doing something about it is having very public conversations like this. If you're listening to this podcast, I'm assuming that you have some level of empathy or curiosity about this subject, because otherwise, why would you be listening? But something you can do is be aware, look around you, see something and say something. And also, if you're not in the community, look for ways that you can contribute, whether that's donating to an advocacy center participating in a more Jensen and Holes web sleuther position, which is totally out of my wheelhouse or my area of knowledge. I don't know how to do web sleuthing, but there's always something that you can do. And for those who are listening who are in the community, there are resources available. And just like you said, we need to recognize strength in community and if we need help, be secure in ourselves enough to be able to reach out and say to our community that we need support. I know this is a huge issue. The numbers are big. There are lots of facets to it. But I think if you listen and even if it's a few people who listen and that these few people change the way they talk about Native or Indigenous people, or they reach out to their communities, or they reach out to these advocacy centers, they can also spread the word and things can change. So public forums and public conversations are really important. Yeah. And it's, I think, especially if you're non-Indigenous listening to something like this, you need to do a lot more than just listen. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that people are like, they just think that being an ally is just being aware. Yes, that's what the, the point of this is to make sure that people are aware of the resources, but also aware of the movement and everything like that. But in order for real change to happen, there, it needs to go beyond being aware. As an Indigenous person, changing that narrative, really important. But then also understanding 
where I am in the movement and then knowing what I can do to help further this conversation, but also help the communities that these conversations are about. I've had a lot of people who are just like, that sucks. And then that's like the end of the conversation. Oh, yeah. Where they like, just re- they feel, oh, I feel bad that that's happening. Yeah. Thoughts and, and prayers. Like, yeah, thoughts and prayers. Like, that's exactly <laughs> It's not going to help me at all right now. Thanks for the sentiment. But yeah, the reason why I'm yelling about these things is because <laughs> I want it to change. I think that's a good point. It's going to take actively maybe volunteering with the community or just helping people who are directly affected by these things. That's the stuff that's going to matter. If you can, if you're in those areas, joining marches, signing petitions actively participating in the movement that's something everyone can do and also don't go to your nearest native friends and start asking questions and dumping things on them I, i felt like that has happened to me quite a few times where like my friends will think it's appropriate to like talk about these things with me and i'm like i don't want to talk to you about this Also, now is not the time and the place. I was going to say, there's a time and a place to talk about these things. They're very heavy. They're emotionally charged. You can't just throw it out there. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, because I've I've had like different people, different coworkers like want to talk about these things. And like I have very strict boundaries and I'm able to, you know, say, you know, I don't really want to talk about this. And then also you don't necessarily know how traumatizing those conversations are until after Mm -hmm. they happen. And so like if you are a non-Indigenous person, be understanding that we are willfully talking about this and that's us as individuals and finding the nearest Native person and asking them if they know about missing and murdered Indigenous women, you're not actually doing anything positive. Uh, If you want education, I will be linking resources. Please read those instead of going to the nearest person because this is their reality. Yeah. There's this really important conversation about contemporary indigenous artists, especially in Alaska, and it's gotten a whole lot better over the past few years. Alaska natives were very tokenized, and we are still being continued to be tokenized. (laughs) And people want us to create, you know, these culturally centric pieces, but they don't really want to listen to the artists. And so they're just kind of like, push that aside and then be like oh this beautiful ivory carving and it's like (laughs) yes it's beautiful and you should be supporting the artist but you should also be listening to the artist as well i'm really grateful to to be immersed in it and to be a part of it and to be a part of kind of that movement here in in anchorage specifically it's really interesting because people who weren't listening to me before now that i have a little bit of a platform and a little bit of weight to my work and me as an artist now they're like, oh, Tristan, yeah, we've supported you this entire time. And I'm like, oh, you guys are exhausting. Like, <laughs> it's hard to constantly like have to advocate for your own voice and for the voice of your people. I feel like people, especially with the with the movement, they just kind of reduce it down to like artwork. Yeah. Like people put out missing and murdered indigenous women artwork, and that's like the only thing that they focus on. And you have to really have these important conversations and expand that thinking outside of, well, I helped because I bought a piece on this movement. I will say that we do have a Native piece that is associated with this month. 
the money going to that is going to support the Coalition to Stop Violence Against Native Women. This is an area that needs continual support. So a one-time purchase is appreciated. That money is going to be put to good use. However, there's more that goes into it that needs to be talked about. You know, you don't have to necessarily give money while it's very helpful and especially with these different you know organizations and helping them and, and funding them and donating and buying artwork like that's really really important there's a lot of stuff that you can do that doesn't cost money or you don't have to do that and I think a lot of people kind of get stuck they don't have the means of donating in, a, in one way or another or they don't have the means of buying artwork listening to this is helpful acknowledging that there's a problem is helpful but you can also you know, start changing the narrative. You can start educating other people and start expelling those resources out to communities. And, you know, maybe you can't yeah. donate or maybe you can't buy artwork, but maybe your friends can, maybe your family members can. So really just normalizing these conversations and changing the narrative of different victims. So those are things that causes that ripple effect. Do you want to be an ally to these communities whether it's indigenous or um, LGBTQ or these black communities, you have to constantly ask yourself, what can I do to help? Yeah. And it's a complex issue with a lot of facets. But the good thing is for as many facets of the issue, there are just as many ways that you can help support big or small. And I don't want to shame people for not being able to contribute in a certain way. Everything helps. It's just being mindful of what people are going through and doing what you can at your particular level. And that's all we can really ask for. Yeah. And and really just listen to the people of the communities. You want to humble yourself and realize that the communities, they are the most effective leaders of these issues and of these changes. Yep. And that's why I partnered with you and <laughs> other lovely women who, if you follow, it will be a good start to watching and participating and being involved in the community. All Everyone involved in this project is involved in being a visible Indigenous person in one way or another. It's very important what you're doing and what the other women are doing. It's important to have this conversation and it's like, I'm constantly educating myself as well. Yes. I think anyone who's involved in this, we're constantly conscious of the fact that we don't know everything and we're not going to be the experts on everything. Look to these community leaders who aren't, you know, they're not looking to be the alpha. Yeah. They're looking to collaborate and they're looking to listen and to advocate. I want to lead us forward. I don't want to be the leader that makes sense. I do believe that leadership can be collaborative. Yeah, yeah, definitely can. There's always more to learn. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this project. And I will be doing this project every year as I am able. I'm really thankful that you asked me to be a part of this. Honestly, we have the best conversations. I feel so comfortable talking to you and talking about these issues and being in a vulnerable position where we do talk about things like this do talk about identity and how difficult these conversations are. The fact that you asked me to be a part of this was like, I don't know, it, it was 
It was a lot. And you know that I'm doing a lot right now and I'm working a lot. But at the same time, I think I, I get a lot out of this. And I think it really solidifies my passion for this work and why I do this in the first place. It always comes down to other people. You know, over the course of the last few years, when I first started really kind of grappling with this identity kind of piece, I basically was like, I did this all myself. You know, this is all my work. But it's not. I really had to look to other people to help me and to ask for help. Yeah, being a part of this project, I, it's really just a refresher as to why I want to do this in the first place. <laughs> so I just had to thank you on air, recorded. <laughs> Because I already thanked you already, but now it's recorded <laughs> and now it's documented. I'm grateful very, and I am not saying this lightly. I am very grateful for your friendship and that we've been able to stay in touch this year because we share a lot of the same passions and we do have really good conversations. And I think that these kinds of connections can only be made when you're being open and willing to share yourself. These conversations are good for us. They're good for me. I love being able to have them and I'm grateful for you participating in them. And they're helpful for other people to listen to as well, which is, you know, why I'm doing this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what I love hearing that from other people. I do this for myself, but I do this for other people. And hearing that feedback that someone got something out of it, it's just so energizing. I'm just like, yes, this is exactly why yes. I do all of this. Like, otherwise, I'm just literally just screaming into the <laughs> void. And then I'm just further isolating myself. And that's that's not what I want. I want that community support. And I want us to work together to meet this common goal. Yeah, no, I'm just really grateful. I'm really grateful to know you. And also constantly check in with each other and it's what I said before with this podcast I can hear it whenever I listen back to it I can hear how comfortable it is and I think other people can hear it too and I think that's that's really important to these conversations especially regarding such difficult topics but also showing how important community is and how important our communities are to us and how important these relationships are it's a lot to be a part of something so genuine and so passionate it's just really awesome to be a part of <laughs> well thanks for uh making me cry and i'm glad this is an audio <laughs> medium so no one can see how red my face is i've already cried like two or three times during this conversation <laughs> is this revenge yes. <laughs> oh, i did such a good job she made me cry with the content now i'm going to compliment her until she cries <laughs> <laughs> that's, um, that's what I'm that's my secret power you know <laughs> making people cry <laughs> with me. sometimes you, you do make people cry and you know there's there's a myriad of things that you make people feel through your art and through your social media so tell us where we can find you for that myriad of emotions <laughs> we're on this journey together yes. so I'm, I'm I want to be a part of a community and I want to share my journey with people and I want to share other people's journeys with people as well. I am on Twitter under Agonaric Tweets 
and that's spelled A-G-N-A-U-R-A-Q. That's my indie book name. And then my Instagram is Uganark as well. So you kind of get a lot of kind of that emotion through text on Twitter. And then I share a lot of my artwork and my personal life and how my culture influences my work and how my community affects my work as well. A few years ago, when I was communicating through my artwork and people didn't fully understand, I was like, okay, I need to start putting myself out there. It's really nerve wracking. But now I'm a lot stronger of a person. I have a lot stronger of a personality. And I feel like I'm probably my truest self now than I was before so yeah I do have a lot to share (laughs) well you know what that's what this podcast is all about that's everything I wanted it to be just we're all on the same journey and some of us when we come from mixed backgrounds we have to do a little extra work but it's all worth it to attain or get closer to being that truer version of yourself. And I just want to create a space where everyone feels free to explore and be that true self. So, I mean, that's everything to me, really. Agnark and I both had some emotional blows the day of this recording, so if we started off somber or slow, that's why. And if you can't tell, Agnark and I have gotten a little bit close over this last year, so we had to end on a light note, especially with such a heavy topic and losing another sister on the same day of recording. We are supposed to feel rather safe and protected in society, but how can you really have any sense of real security when on any given day you can open up your phone and all you see is another person gone who didn't deserve to be? In this episode and in the rest, we all really wanted to tell you about who these missing and murdered indigenous women were. But as you can tell, this is a reoccurring problem that we run into, not just in this episode, but in the rest as well. There's not a lot of information about these women outside of how they died. And even then, that information can be almost nothing. We didn't reach out to the families because, again, this isn't a true crime podcast. But who knows, maybe that's something I can do in the future. For now, you can all find Agonark's social media information and their work on our website linked in the show notes. Please also check out our special edition merchandise that will be launched. Keep an eye on the Some Kind of Brown Instagram for that, and it will be available through the link in my link tree and the show notes. 80% of the proceeds will all be donated to the Coalition to Stop Violence Against Indigenous Women and Girls. Aganarik has put their heart into this design and project and we hope that it touches you. There are also some resources that I mentioned before that can be found on the website as well. I owe a massive, massive thank you to the amazing Teresa Bear Fox for the use of her song Skyworld. And on that note, I will see you next week for some more Red November.